This morning we're continuing with looking at the results of the crucifixion. And next week, at least my plan is, already started working on that, we'll start looking at the significance of the resurrection. And we'll read through the biblical account of the resurrection and start talking about the cosmic significance of the resurrection. This morning, we're looking at the significance of the crucifixion, and we're going to repeat some things that we've already said. And we ended last week, you remember, with quoting from John 19.30. Now, everyone should know John 19.30. The three most significant words the Lord Jesus ever spoke. Three of the most significant words the Lord Jesus ever spoke are in John 19.30. Please remember John 19.30. There are certain scriptures that are critical for us to know. And so what does John 19.30 say? What are these three most critical words that John 19.30 is recorded Jesus having said at the cross? It is finished. <clears throat> So this morning, let's talk about what it is finished is all about. The word finished here is the word, and I've said this several times in here. You should be familiar with it. It's a commercial term, but it's also a term used in other areas. The word tetelestai. And it is the verb form of the verb teleo, T-E-L-O, T-E-L-E-O, teleo. I don't know what that may be in your notes. I'm not sure. And so it's finished. Something is over. But the significance is not only in the word finished. It's also in the verb form of how that word teleo is spoken in the Greek. And so first of all, it is The word finished means completed. It's ended. And especially I want you to remember this word in relation to the word finished. Because I think this word more accurately sums up what Jesus is saying. Although the word completed is a good word. One is to remember especially the word fulfilled. Fulfilled. Again, I'm not sure what's in your notes. Evan has done those. And he does an excellent job. Fulfill. So Jesus from the cross says, it is fulfilled, meaning something that was to be fulfilled is finished, completed in its fullness. The verb form here has to do with an action that occurs in the past, that occurred in the past, but has continuing effect In today, or today, presently, and continuing. And so it's not the aorist form of the verb, which means a completed past action. That's finished. I finished it. And that action necessarily automatically does not have an impact on us today. It may or may not. But this verb is a completed past action. And this is very important for us to get this. Whose effect is as impacting today as it was on the day Jesus spoke that word. Now, do we get that? Whatever it is that we're going to talk about as being finished, Jesus is saying all of this, and we're only going to talk about a little bit, all of this is completed 
is fulfilled. And not only is it completed and fulfilled in my death, but the impact or the effect of that fulfillment is a continuing application or activity in the lives of my people until my return. It is in effect until his return, because at the return of Jesus, everything, if you would, is finished in its absolute completeness, and then the eternity begins and God wraps up the whole thing. So what is finished? What is finished in the death of the incarnate Son of God? What is finished in the cross? The cosmic stage is set when Jesus says it is finished. The cosmic stage is set for the dawning of the first day of the new covenant or the first day of the new creation that awaits its consummation in the return of Christ from the heaven. And so that is one of the things that is fulfilled. It is finished, meaning that which has come to this place is over and a brand new day, spiritually speaking, begins. This is the day that God begins the fulfillment or the creation or the inauguration of the new covenant or of the new creation, anticipating the new heaven and the new earth in the return of the Lord Jesus. Everything has been finished. I'm using the word finished in relation to it is finished. Everything has been finished for the restoration of the glory of God in his redeemed and regenerated and renewed people as his image bearers. Everything has been completed as to what needed to be done to bring God's rebellious people back to their original intention of being his image bearers. Remember Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Remember that? According to our likeness. And so, in it is finished, everything that the Old Testament, everything that God was doing from the fall all the way to the last breath of Jesus has now been wrapped up so that all of that preparation has been completed by Jesus at the cross so that now God will have a people according to his image. Also, everything has been finished as to the fulfillment of the inauguration of the physical and moral restoration of the universe. Now, we didn't say today the universe, the moral and physical restoration of the universe has occurred. But it is inaugurated at the, cro- at the, uh, at the cross when Jesus dies so that now we are in that time period when God is renewing, beginning with us and in us, bringing it to completion with the Lord Jesus' return. Everything is completed for that inauguration and for that day. Everything has been finished for the fulfillment as to the image uh, uh, for the um, inauguration, as I said, of the new heaven and the new earth. And everything has been finished for the triumphant return for Jesus. So that's some of the things that have been finished. But I want to also go back and look at that which we've talked about a few weeks ago. Remember what I said 
There are four, at least four major consequences of sin that are dealt with at the cross. Do you remember those four? And without looking at your notes. I know, you're looking at your notes and you're seeing them. But there are four major consequences of sin that are finished or completed or fulfilled or dealt with at the cross. And we should remember these four. First of all, God's anger against us is over. At the cross. Secondly, the guilt of our sin as to forgiveness is what? Applied at the cross. Third, the enmity between God and us, enemies, remember Romans 5.10, is over at the cross. And fourth, our I'm sorry, let me go back and do it the other way. The purchase first. We have been purchased out of the kingdom of Satan. And then we're not enemies anymore. I can do it better this way. Propitiation, expiation, reconciliation, and redemption. So let's go through all four of those again. Why? Because we've already done it? Yes. But because we need to be reminded. So when Jesus says it is finished, in his mind... Are these consequences of sin that have been dealt with at the cross? In his mind, he has this on his heart. And saying it is finished, Jesus proclaims that the four consequences of sin have been accomplished for our salvation. Fulfilled in his life and in his suffering and in his death. So what are these? First, propitiation. Remember what the word propitiation means. It means the out. Or the assuaging or satisfaction of the justice of God because of our sin. Because God is righteous, because God is righteous, because God is holy, because God is loving. And by the way, those are not separate attributes. Those are all of his attributes are the same and fully expressed and fully existing eternally within the Godhead. But we separate them in order to have a better understanding. So it means that because God is a holy God, because he's a holy, righteous God, because he's a holy, righteous, loving God, you see, because he's a holy, righteous, loving, and just God, etc. Because of that, God must punish sin. Not to punish sin would be to say that rebellion against his love, rejection of his love, repudiation of his love is okay. It's okay. It's not a problem. And God cannot say that because it denies himself. It denies his own character. It denies his own nature. It denies that relationship that exists between the Father and the Son eternally in the Godhead. And so God is bound by his own character to judge and to punish our sin. And so what does he do? In our unrighteousness, the wrath of God is poured out against us. Remember in Romans 1.18, for the unrighteousness of man, remember. And so God punishes our unrighteousness. So this means that Jesus, in order for God to have a people who are now as righteous as Jesus is, hmm, to have a people who are as righteous as God is. Did you hear me? 
in order to have a people who are as righteous as God is. Because if we're less righteous than God, then we are unrighteous. Do you get this? We have to think this way. Why? Because this is what the Bible tells us. It's not that we're going to come close to righteousness and have some righteousness. We have to be the very same righteousness that God is in himself in order to fellowship with God. Now, when you think about it that way, who of us has a chance? It's not a matter of emphasizing the works that we do because too many Christians want to talk about the sins and the works and obedience or whatever. That's contained in it. But we have to be as right as to our nature. Our nature has to be as right as God's nature. Wow. Now, if that doesn't put an impossibility on us, nothing does. Who can be that way? So what has to happen is God must send send his son as a man and for his unrighteous people so that Jesus, as a man, can, because he's the eternal son, collect all of God's people into himself spiritually and relationally. And because he will live righteously, why? Because he is righteous, because he's the son of God, righteous as the Father and as the Holy Spirit. And that righteous one now lives in this human man, Jesus, so that Jesus, this man, is as righteous as the Son of God is. And that righteousness is exhibited in the absolute, perfect, continual obedience of the Son of God. So that when he lives this way, he has fulfilled as a man the perfection and all the righteousness of God. He has demonstrated that he is the righteousness of God in human form, in a man. So as a result of that... He only is the one who can take upon himself to bear the sin of his unrighteous people. Or, if you would, to bear the unrighteousness of his people, which is expressed in our sin. You see, the issue isn't essentially sin. It's the character or the nature of unrighteousness in us which produces the sin. So we have to look at the root. The root is unrighteousness. The fruit is sin. And so we have to be careful as believers not to be, if you would, judging people because of fruit. That is certainly an aspect of revelation or of evaluation. But the judgment is because, not because they did something wrong. The judgment is that they are wrong because they are unrighteous. Amen? So let's be very careful how we do that. I'm moving too slowly. <clears throat> so. At the cross, Romans 3.25, Jesus is put forth as a propitiation by his blood. This means that in the shedding of the blood of Jesus, the just wrath of God is averted. It's satisfied. His demands for death are satisfied. When did he demand death for disobedience? Genesis 2.17. Remember that? 
Jesus is fulfilling the demand of God as expressed initially in Genesis 2.17. The soul that sinneth shall die. Because sin in that context produced unrighteousness. Therefore, the unrighteousness became the character or the nature of man, which then produced the sin. Therefore, the obstacle to our salvation was removed when Jesus died as the propitiation for our sin. That was the obstacle that was in the way. So that when Jesus dies and it is finished as to the wrath of God against us, it is finished being fulfilled in the death of Jesus, complete and fulfilled. Remember those two words in the word finished. Now, all the obstacle that kept God from embracing us as his righteous people all the obstacle is fully removed so that the next three activities of God as to our sin, as to our state, as to the consequences of our sin may be removed. Second, expiation, the guilt of our sin. All are guilty. And so remember the guilt and the pollution of our sin must be removed having been dealt with at the cross through the wrath of God because God's wrath is propitiated at the cross because the wrath is settled or satisfied or poured out on Jesus fully so that no more anger of God results against any believer whatsoever and forever, right? God is not and cannot be angry as to wrath against any believer, He can be disappointed. He can discipline. But God cannot, being consistent in himself, punish any believer for our sin. Do we get that? We can be disciplined. We can be adjusted. But we cannot be punished because the punishment for sin is always death. It's always the wrath of God. And so we need to get that again deep in within us because when sometimes when we sin, some folks really kind of get a thought of God is against me now and what is he going to do and he's going to get me and he's going to punish me. That all went upon Jesus. And so now when I commit sin, I am free from the fear of punishment and abandonment So that now I can do what Luke 15 says of the son. I can go back home. You know why that boy can go back home with confidence? Because he knows that his father is a forgiving father. And although there may be consequences of sin, there won't be any punitive activity. The father won't pour out his wrath. It's a picture of God the father receiving us into his kingdom as that boy in Luke 15, 17 comes to his senses, is if you would, born again by the Spirit, and the Spirit leads him into the Father's house so that there's a celebration, right? So expiation, our sins are removed. Remember Hebrews ten seventeen, which quotes Jeremiah thirty one thirty four. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In other words, I will act against them as if they have never sinned. I will never hold their sins against them. I will still see their sin. I will still understand that they are sinning and rebelling. God is not blind. 
Some teach that now, because we're saved, God doesn't even see that we're sinning. That's foolishness. It's foolishness. He sees it clearly. But he sees it within the context of that sin which you just committed. That sin which I'm going to commit tomorrow or today was paid for fully in the cross of Christ. It's finished as to punishment. Amen. Is that good news? You see, some people want to say, yeah, but if you tell people they are fully forgiven from the moment of their conception to the moment of their death, it's unrighteousness, you see. We're conceived in unrighteousness. If you tell people that, they're going to take advantage of it. Well, you know, that's right. Some people are going to take advantage or try to take advantage of God, correct? But do you believe that God has the ability to deal with a believer who's going to take advantage? How many of you believe that God's hands are tied and he can't do anything about it? So here's what you do. If you think you can get away with it, go ahead and see what will happen. See what will happen. You see, this is the only way that we can have security and stability of fellowship with God. If it is, as some people say, if you sin, if you don't repent, you will go to hell. There are churches that teach that today. If you sin and don't repent, you're going to hell. Frank, remember, we heard some of that teaching. And they're sincere in this. And because of that, there's no security in our fellowship. In fact, the security of our fellowship then depends upon what I do rather than ultimately what Christ has done finally. Do we see that? This is freedom. It is freedom from the consequences of sin so that we now have the freedom of fellowship with God and to mature in Christ as we sin and repent. Correct? And you may say, well, someone may say, well, suppose someone just continues to sin and they don't repent and whatever. Well, God deals with that. Either that person is not a saved person because a person who sins without any resultant conviction of the Holy Spirit, I would say there's no evidence of the Spirit in him. And where there's no evidence of the Spirit, we cannot say, and that person cannot say he or she is saved. I don't care what you, what you experience. But if you do continue sinning, the Lord will deal with you. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, dealing especially specifically with the uh, communion meal, but I think it's a broader context, the Apostle Paul said, look, if you keep doing this, this is sin. And for this reason, what verse am I? 30. 30. 30. For this reason, some of you have gotten sick, and even some of you have fallen asleep, which means what? God took you out. So you see, Andy, if your life as a believer is going to be so corrupt as to vilify Christ, God's going to either touch your body, touch your wife, touch your children, or touch something about you, or he's taking you home. Amen? Amen. So don't you ever think that you're getting away with anything. And so the sin is removed from us. Redemption, our captivity to Satan and sin, is over. 
We're no longer under the dominion of Satan. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. We were purchased. Jesus did not pay Satan. He paid the price of God. Okay? He paid the price that he himself demanded when he himself said, let there be light. When the Son of God in eternity spoke creation into existence, he did so knowing that he himself would become the sin bearer of his people. He himself knew that he would be paying the price that the Father and he and the Holy Spirit demanded for sin, which is death. Correct? It was a payment of the Godhead within the Godhead. It has nothing to do with paying anything to Satan, as is heretically taught. Romans, uh, let me see, where am I? Did I skip reconciliation? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll skip that. So let me go back. The enmity. We're no longer enemies with God. Remember Romans 5.10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Isaiah 59.2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. So when we were born into this world as unrighteous beings in character and nature, we were born separated from the fellowship of the Godhead. Correct? And so some people say, I've always known God. Well, you've always known about God. No person in the world except the Lord Jesus has always known the Father as to fellowship, as to intimacy, as to relationship, as to sonship. Correct? So when a person says that, okay, I don't argue very much because it becomes pretty evident what they mean as we speak. I've always known God. I've always loved God. Well, that may be, but that's not the truth. And so we were enemies. And so the blood of Jesus now reconciles us to God so that from enemies we are now accepted as his forgiven children into his house. How strong is that acceptance? Are you a believer today? Each one of us has to answer that. Are you a believer If you are, what does that mean? Will you ever be expelled from the household of God? Is there anything that you can do to expel yourself from the house from which there was nothing you could do to enter the house? You see, if entrance into the house depended upon my seeking for God and then he would respond to my seeking, then It could be said that my non-seeking or my disobedience can now separate me from the household of God because it was on my initiative that I was able to get God to call upon me. But now my lack of faith can now be construed as being put out of the house. But that's not how it happened. God sought us. Is there any, just take the nation of Israel, who called whom? God called Israel into existence. He said, you were my people. He didn't say you were my people because you sought for me. 
You sought for me. Does the Bible say we should seek God? Well, certainly. Does it say we should call upon the name of the Lord? Well, certainly. But the calling and the seeking are as a consequence of his initiating in me, in us, a desire to call upon him. Do you see that? It's the work of the wooing of the Holy Spirit, the wooing of the Spirit of us into the family of God as he changes our hearts from stony hearts to living hearts or fleshly hearts. Remember in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 7. Yes, it does say I have to respond by faith. Yes, it does say I have to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, certainly you do. I have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. Remember, that's true, right, Billy? But that is not my initiating work. It is God's work of drawing me to himself. And that is the, my faith response to his call. And the reason I can faithfully respond that way to his call is because he has given me the gift of faith, which causes me to have both the ability and the desire, the power to call upon his name. Don't you see? In other words, this work of salvation is entirely of God. It certainly involves us, but even our willing involvement is as a consequence of his work. Therefore, who can boast? So it's not that I found Jesus. I couldn't find him. It's that he found me. It's not that I found Jesus to be saved, but he saved me, finding me and bringing me in. Redemption, we've been purchased from the captivity of sin. Our captivity of sin and Satan is finished. Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, his beloved son. So as a result, we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And so all of these, all of these benefits, if you would, of these blessings of the cross, all of these benefits and blessings which are contained in the word, it is finished, are the result that the old covenant has completely been finished. Now, what does that mean? It means completely been fulfilled, and the requirements of the old covenant are no longer binding upon us who were in the new covenant. I mean, that's what Hebrews is all about. If you go back and read Hebrews, that's exactly what he's saying. And so Jesus calls the new covenant. This is the new covenant, remember, in Luke 22. In my blood, there's something new. This new covenant, by the way, is the covenant which has always been intimated from the very beginning. When was the shedding of Jesus' blood shadowed or typed in the beginning. What is the first instance that we find in the Bible where Jesus is going to die on the cross through the shedding of his blood? Where is it? Genesis 3, what verse? 21. Kirk, I knew you knew it. And what does God do with Adam and Eve? He clothes them with the skin of an animal. I don't know, but it was probably a goat or a lamb, but I don't know that for sure. I don't think it was a lizard. 
And what is that saying? Innocent blood was shed. That is a type or a foreshadowing of the cross. And from that point on, blood is the substance of forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So we see it. The old covenant from its initiation in the Old Testament is brought to a fruition or completion or fulfillment when Jesus says it is finished. After the fall, you remember God established the old covenant as his temporary means of fellowshipping with his people until it is replaced or fulfilled in the new covenant. The old covenant, and I think I'm going to be, I'm going to have to talk about what is called the covenant of grace and, and how that works in the, in the Bible. But at any rate, the old covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant of Moses especially, the law that was given, was a temporary means of God's fellowshipping and maintaining a relationship with his rebellious, hard-headed, stiff-necked people until the day that the Son of God would pay the full price for all our sin at the cross. That's the purpose of the Old Covenant. It was God's administrative means of maintaining his fellowship with his people and maintaining them in that relationship. He was doing it through this covenant. Now, we're not going to talk a lot about that right now. And so you see that promise of the new covenant coming in Jeremiah. We won't read it. I have it in your notes. I don't know if you have it in yours. We see it in Jeremiah 31. where Jeremiah begins to list the aspects of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, this is given to Jeremiah. Do you remember when Jeremiah was speaking? He was speaking in the last final days and years of the southern kingdom of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. That's when he's speaking. God was about to rain down destruction upon Jerusalem and completely wipe out the temple, put it to an end. And in anticipation of that, Jeremiah is given this prophecy. I'm going to wipe it out because of my wrath against the sin of Israel, the sin of my people. But there's a new covenant coming. There's a new day coming. So although I'm going to do this, there's great hope. And then he goes through this. So go back and read verses 31 to 34 and refresh yourself and see. This is in the middle of the Old Testament. So, what are some of the things that are fulfilled, finished? Let me just read through these. Because the old covenant has been fulfilled, here are some of the things that have been completed or fulfilled at the cross. The seven Levitical festivals or the feasts were finished or fulfilled in Christ. Remember what Colossians 2.17 says. These, meaning these festivals, these feasts, these days, these rites of circumcision and food and observance of holy days and all of that. All of that were a shadow of the things to come. But the substance of fullness belongs to Christ. He has gathered all of that into himself. The requirement of obedience to the law. The ability for God's people to be made fit for his presence through the sacrificial system. 
the declaration of his people as God's people through the food rights and the observance of certain regulations, all of that is fulfilled in one man at the cross. The necessity of the law and to the prophets is finished. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so, as to the external requirement of obedience to the law, which results in punishment if you're disobedient through the, the sacrificial system, all of that was fulfilled in Christ. The law is not done away with. How can it be? Because the law is a statement of the very character of God. But our position to the law and the law's work in us is fulfilled. So in the Old Testament, the law is given as God's grace gift to us. So that we will know what sin is. We will know that we are an unrighteous people. And God will show us the only way to be made fit for his presence is to be declared righteous or forgiven under that system through the sacrificial system, which is what? Finalized or finished or fulfilled in Christ. It's a good system. It held people in control, if you would, until Christ. Remember what Paul talks about in Galatians about the, uh, the law. The sacrificial system, with all of its external rights and regulations, its food and days that made God's people fit for his presence, was finished. Everything about the old system was finished, was completed in this one man. All the messianic prophecies were finished, the prophecies of the coming Christ. All of them were finished or completed in Christ. The temple as a location, the physical location of the presence of God is over. The temple of God no longer exists in a building as to his location upon the earth. But where is the temple of God now? We are the temple of God. We are the household of God. So if you would, the presence of God literally and physically dwelt in the holy of holies in the temple, didn't it? It literally dwelt there. And he was literally among his people. But he was not within his people. That's finished so that today his presence is where? In me and in you, causing us now to become a living temple, a living worshiper, a living one who is living obediently unto God. His presence is where? Now in me by the Spirit. Lastly, and I think this will resonate with many of us, it is finished. What is finished? I don't know if this is in your notes. I think it is not. The death of Jesus is finished. No longer to be sacrificed. If there is a necessity for continual sacrifice of the Son of God as to the forgiveness of our sin, then what he did at the cross was partially significant and partially effective forgiving only our original sin, and then we have to, through our works and through our deeds and through our religious activities, gain the forgiveness of Christ on a daily or weekly basis through rituals and regulations. There's no security in that. There's no confidence in that. Suppose I miss the day of obligation. 
Suppose I don't get the last rites. Suppose all of these things. And again, it puts the burden of my salvation and my dependence upon myself and upon a system upon the earth rather than upon the Son of God who died and who was raised again. It's over. Hebrews 9.12 talks about an eternal salvation, an eternal redemption. Hebrews 7.25 talks about the Son of God ever liveth to make you know, intercession for us. And so the system that many in this room were raised with, that sacrificial repetitive system, it's not the truth. Jesus has died what? Once and for all and is now set down at the right hand of God. Correct? That's either correct or the other is correct. And we go with the word of God. So next week, we'll be talking about the resurrection. And there was a scripture that I wanted you to read in preparation for that. But I don't remember now what it was. (laughs) So we'll begin to talk about the resurrection next week. But we will, in the beginning of the class, bring back one more issue about it is finished, the work of Jesus at the cross, which we've already talked about, but I want to make sure we grab it. Because did you notice today, we made no mention except of the secondary issues of the work of Jesus. Did you notice that? Did we mention the primary work of Jesus? Do you know what the primary work of Jesus is? The work of God. This is the work of God, but it's a result of another kind of work of God, which we'll talk about next week. Remember, we've discussed this before. I want to repeat it because I'm concerned always that we don't remember some of these things that we need to remember. Okay, next week.